Welcome to Military History Plus, the podcast that explores the history of war in breadth and depth. This is Professor Gary Sheffield, and I'm here with some good news. With season one having been released over the summer and season two being recorded shortly, we're in a bit of a lull. So to tide us over, here is a bonus episode with our guest, Jerry White. Hello, Jerry. Good morning, Gary. Good morning, Spencer. Morning, Jerry. Let's kick off by asking Jerry, can you just say something about your background, your interest in military history and what we're going to be discussing today? Absolutely. Well, first of all, I'm based here in Cork City in Ireland. Um, I suppose one thing that defined me for most of my life is I was a member of the Irish Army for 43 years, based here in Collins Barracks, formerly Victoria Barracks. Throughout my life, I've had a passion for history, military history in particular. And during my military career, I was very fortunate in that I was instrumental in establishing a military museum in Collins Barracks. And also in 2015, I was selected to give the eulogy at the state funeral of Thomas Kent, one of the 1916 um, leaders who was executed and whose remains were reinterred in 19, uh, 2015. Then on the 1st of July 2016, I had another great honour when I was selected as one of the members of the Irish Defence Forces to represent Ireland at the Somme commemoration at, at Deepville. Um, like I said, I have a passion for history. I've written or co-authored a number of books on primarily on the period of all aspects of Irish military history from 1913 to 1923, the period now known as the Irish Revolution. Among those books just would be The Burning of Cork, the Osprey book, The Irish Volunteer Soldier, 1913 to 23, A History of Collins Barracks, and also I was co-editor of A Great Sacrifice, where we identified Cork casualties of the war. I've written pieces for newspapers, journals, and I've appeared on television and radio documentaries. Well, thank, thanks, Jerry, And we'll come back and talk about your publications in, in more detail later on. Well, Irish military history is very rich throughout history, and it's particularly rich and not necessarily in a particularly positive way in this period, because we're talking about a, a very difficult time in terms of relations between Britain and Ireland, and of course, Absolutely. relations within Ireland itself. We're talking about the period of the uh, the Irish War of Independence or Anglo-Irish War, depending on what you prepare to call it, and the Irish Civil War. Right. Now, I've I've asked Jerry in advance, and this is, I know, a huge ask, <laughs> but uh, whether he could give a brief overview of the political and military events in Ireland from 1912 to 1924. So once we've established this narrative framework, we can go back and look at individual events and uh, issues in great, greater detail. So, Jerry, can you give us a sort of snapshot of where Ireland is in 1912? Absolutely, Gary. I suppose um, 11 years of Irish history in 10 minutes, but um, here I go. Well, I suppose the story really starts in, and when was it again? I think the 11th of April 1912, when Prime Minister Asquith introduced the third Home Rule Bill in the House of Commons. Now, Home Rule for Ireland or self-government was a huge issue for the majority nationalist population ever since the 1800 Act of Union abolished the Irish Parliament, and replaced it with representation in Westminster. Restoring home rule or self-government or measure of self-government to Ireland became um, an objective of, of the Liberal government in the late 19th century. And in 1886, Gladstone introduced the first home rule, home rule bill in the House of Commons, but that was defeated in the Commons. Then in 1893, the second home rule bill passed through the Commons would, was vetoed by the House of Lords. But then... The 1910 general election changed the arithmetic in the Commons and gave the Irish Parliamentary Party, the National Parliamentary Party, 
the balance of power, so to speak. And then the Par- 1911 Parliament Act changed the, um, the abolished the veto of the of the Lords and replaced it with a power to sort of a two year um, wait before a bill could be passed. So that changed the the the, the arithmetic we'll say in the House of, of, of in Parliament. So unlike the first two bills, there was every expectation that this bill would make it through through the parliamentary process. Needless to say, it was welcomed um by the majority nationalist population, but bitterly opposed by the unionist Protestants, especially those in Northeast Ulster. And that opposition increased and it culminated on the 28th of September 1912 in what was known as Ulster Day, when 237 men signed Ulster Solemn League and Covenant, pledging themselves to resist the introduction of Home Rule, and also 234 women signed the Parallel Declaration in that aligning themselves with, 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 with the men who signed the Covenant. So that was over 460,000 um, Ulster Unionists determined to resist Home Rule by any means at their disposal. Okay, I think, I think it's Sorry. worth saying, so I think it's worth staying in this stage uh, that we're not talking about a demand for independence. Absolutely. Home rule means something like devolution, something like... Correct, absolutely correct. ...set up in, in Scotland? Yes, yes, even lesser polls, I'd imagine, like the UK Parliament would retain control of defence, finance, and other key key um, aspects as well. As I was saying, the Ulster resistance to Home Rule took a serious turn for the worse, I suppose, in January 1913, when the Ulster Volunteer Force was formed. This was a 100,000-strong paramilitary force that was dedicated to um, defeating Home Rule by force of arms. So in many respects, you could say the Ulster men introduced the gun to 20th century um, Irish politics. And... It may, it's, it's worth saying that the UVF, as it was known, was supported by elements of the Conservative Party and some elements within the British military establishment. The introduction of the UVF alarmed the Irish nationalist population, and that in turn led to the formation of an Irish volunteer force, a nationalist paramilitary force, in November 1913, which was dedicated to securing the introduction of home rule. And very quickly, there was a meeting in Dublin held on the 25th of November, over 3,000 joined that night, and similar meetings were held throughout the country um, within in the weeks that followed. And like I said, huge recruits poured into the to the Irish volunteers. But it's worth noting as well that running underneath the structures of the Irish volunteers was the Irish Republican Brotherhood. This was a secret oath-bound organization formed in 1858 to to obtain an Irish Republic by force of arms. So they had infiltrated the higher echelons of the volunteer movement, and they saw the volunteers as a means to not securing home rule, but securing an independent Irish Republic. Okay, so we've got two different strands going on. on Absolutely, absolutely. We have two paramilitary forces, one based in northeast Ulster. The Ulster Volunteer Force committed to resisting the introduction of home rule by force of arms, and then... We'll say primarily in the rest of the country, we have the Irish volunteers committed to securing the introduction of home rule by force of arms, if necessary. And this obviously led to an increase in tension throughout the country. How close was Ireland to civil war on the eve of the First World War in August 1914? Well, we'll say things, the situation deteriorated, I should 
very quickly, I suppose, in April, go back to the small bit, Gary, to April, when the Ulster volunteers um, illegally landed a large quantity of arms um, purchased in Germany and they armed themselves. That was quickly followed by what became known as the Curra Mutiny or the Curra Incident, when senior British officers in the Curra indicated that they would refuse to obey orders to march on Ulster and disarm the Ulster volunteers if necessary, if ordered to do so, sorry. And that shook the British political military establishment to the core, and it also seriously alarmed the nationalist population, which led to another influx of of recruits to the Irish volunteers. So by July, August, um, the situation was extremely tense. And during what we call the July crisis, much of the attention of the British cabinet wasn't devoted to what was happening on the continent, but it was pretty much devoted to the situation here in Ireland. Now, civil war didn't break out, but what the great one of the great what-ifs of Irish history, it's a fair bet that it quite possibly could have. If I can just comment on that, Jerry. Yeah. I've got a, a burning interest, of course, in the current mutiny and its relation to the British Army. But if I could just pin you down on a question. Yeah. How close do you think that Ireland came to civil war in the summer of 1940? I think it would have taken something very, very small, uh, Spencer, to trigger off. For example, um, when the Irish volunteers landed weapons, they also purchased in Germany, by the way. They they came ashore at Hoth, I think it's on the 26th of July, 1914. Um, a unit of the King's own Scottish borderers were sent to disarm the volunteers, but failed to do so. But when they were making their way back to a barracks in Dublin, they were met by a crowd, an altercation developed, and they opened fire and used a bayonet, and four people were killed and over 30 were injured. That caused outrage in Dublin. The funeral of those four victims were attended by large units of Irish volunteers. The streets of Dublin were lined. The newspaper editorials were full of outrage. So like I said, if we had a couple of more incidents like that, I do believe the potential for more serious an escalation of violence was actually there. Bear in mind, we had two armed camps in Ireland with two diametrically opposed objectives. Mm. So it really was a tinderbox on, on the end of the First World War. Absolutely, mm. absolutely. So did the outbreak of war between Britain and Germany in August 1914, did that give, in a sense, Ireland a get-out-of-jail-free card? It Well, I suppose you could call it that. I think Winston Churchill later described it as uh, Ireland as the one bright light and everything that was happening. And it is interesting because on the 3rd of August, in a packed session of, of, of the Commons, John Redmond, the leader of the Irish Parliamentary Party, stood up and made an impassioned speech where he offered the British government the services of the Irish volunteers to defend Ireland. And he called upon Edward Carson, the leader of the Ulster volunteers, to join with him in that task. And he told the British government that they could release the 50,000 or so British soldiers based in Ireland bring them back to the mainland UK if necessary, and that Ireland would be defended by both um, both volunteer forces. Again, one of the great what-ifs of Irish history, and also, indeed, one of the great what-ifs of the First World War, if Britain had those extra 50,000 men, what, you know, how would they use them when, when the British Expeditionary Force went to the continent? But it didn't happen. So, like I said, but again, one of the great what-ifs of Irish history. And it did bring down the temperature a bit. You know, okay. both sides, both paramilitary forces had a different focus once war was declared. Well, let's let's now zoom in on what happened when war was declared. How was that received in Ireland? I know you've done a lot of work on your, your home uh, city of yeah. Cork. So maybe 
So that's something about how Cork yeah. reacted? Absolutely. Fo fo focusing on Cork, it was, I say, the newspapers were behind the war effort. Many of the politicians were behind the war effort. Hundreds of young men were reporting back to, um, sorry, were offering themselves to join the British Armed Forces at Victoria Barracks. There was a big recruiting office in the city centre, local police station, and various other places. And that, I think, by in the first three months, nearly if a thousand, of, slightly over a thousand men joined the British Army. And of course, the hundreds of veterans were also rejoining the colours. Now, you had the Republican elements, needless to say, who were opposed to the war. They were saying that Britain's war is not Ireland's war. They were um, against young men joining. They didn't believe any of the tales that were coming out of Belgium about the German atrocities or anything like that. But that didn't really have a major impact in the early days of the war. And the huge... Republicans, I think, were a pretty small minority at this stage. Is that right? Very, very small minority. A couple of um, separatist the Sinn Féin wasn't really the, the the overall term or party that gathered them all together, but you had all different different separatist groups, um, we'll say sporting groups, um, cultural groups and all the rest of it. You had a sm very small Sinn Féin, Sinn Féin party, but by and large, the population of Cork and indeed throughout Ireland did um, support the war effort in the early days. And women, women supported, there was fundraising groups um, formed to raise funds for ambulances, women were knitting socks, sending parcels out to the front and everything. The lads heading off were, were there was parades and unijacks flying and bands playing and all the rest of it. So it wasn't much different, I say, from many other cities in the United Kingdom. Now, from memory, I, Ireland, the island of Ireland raises three new divisions, the 10th Irish Division, yes, 16th Irish Division, and the 36th Ulster Division. Now, the Ulster Division, I think, is rather different from the other two. Uh, the other two, I think, reflect uh, uh, constitutional nationalist opinion. Is that fair to say? That's that's correct. I think the one thing about the, the, the 36th Ulster Division is many units of the Ulster Volunteer Force joined en masse. Right? They went straight in as units. John Redmond, for his part, was trying to form an Irish brigade, distinctly Irish brigade with Irish officers, complete Irish identity. That didn't really happen as much as it did in, in Ulster. But as you said, Gary, we had the 10th Irish Division that would go off and fight in Gallipoli and the 16th Irish Division that would go off and fight in the Western Front. And yes, they did reflect, for the most part, um, constitutional nationalists. And look, there was a whole range of motives that, that led lads to join. Adventure, family tradition, um, doing what their friends were doing, the appeals of, of the politicians, recruiting posters. And Belgian refugees came to Cork and Belgian priests. And that played a huge part, I think, because look at the identity. A lot of people identified small Catholic Ireland with small Catholic Belgium. And I think the presence of in Cork of Belgian refugees and Belgian priests telling the people there, holding meetings and explaining what was happening, would have had an impact on some people as well. And many of the church leaders of the church rode in behind the war effort as well. Yeah, I think it's uh, well. It's like ironic, perhaps, we'll say, is that uh, a small Catholic country being bigger, being um, um, bullied by a, a, a bigger Protestant one, sort of rang bells to both Ireland and Belgium. In, um, in indeed, it did. And I think it's also, I think it's it's, it's uh, fair to say that some recent research has suggested that the 
wholesale transfer of the uh, Ulster Volunteer Force into the 36th Division wasn't quite as we used to think. It was a bit more nuanced than that. Also, I think that the, the 10th Irish Division was a bit more mixed, but I think still true to say that the 16th Irish Division was very much uh, a constitutional nationalist formation, of, of course, which the, um, the Redmond brothers uh, played a, a fairly major role. Absolutely. I mean, you're dead right, Gary. The, 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 if of the two, the 16th Irish Division would be, at the start anyway, had been primarily composed of national volunteers. And one thing we never mentioned is that the war actually split the volunteer movement. When the war broke out, there was 180,000 members of the Irish volunteers. In 19, on the 18th of September, Home Rule was placed in the statute books. On that day, Redmond, John Redmond, the leader of the Irish Parliamentary Party, issued a proclamation in the newspapers calling upon the people of Ireland to support the war. He called it a test to search men's souls. He described the war as a test to search men's souls. And he said the time had now come for Ireland, now that home rule had been placed in the statute books, for Ireland to play its part with the rest of the British Empire. Two days later, he will he addressed the unit of Irish volunteers at Woodbridge, County Wicklow, and he effectively told them the time had now come not to stay at home defending Ireland against an unlikely invasion, but to take their place in the firing line. And that call split the volunteers. The vast majority, about 170,000, supported John Redmond. They became known as national volunteers, where the more separatist, republican-minded um, minority, around between eleven and 12,000, that contained men like Patrick Pierce, um, Owen McNeil and others, they retained the title Irish Volunteers. And shortly after the war started, the Irish Republican Brotherhood formed a secret military council to plan to use the war to plan for a rising to establish an independent Irish Republic. The old saying in the IRB, as the Brotherhood was known, was England's difficulty is Ireland's opportunity. And as those the leaders of the um, IRB felt England had some difficulty on its hands, so now was the time to strike. Well, just just a little local difficulty in, in the form of the First World War. <laughs> yes. uh, but that, that takes us neatly on to uh, the Easter Rising of 1916. Of course, such an enormously uh, significant moment in Irish history. Uh, so perhaps talk about that, but also say something about what difference, if any, the uh, Easter Rising made to the broader history of the First World War. Absolutely. Well, for years, I suppose, many people in Ireland were looking at the Easter Rising in isolation. But historians know, except that was as much part of the First World War as Lawrence's campaign in Arabia or indeed the Russian Revolution. Ireland became Britain's Western Front. Just to go back how it all happened, like I said, the Irish Republican Brotherhood had formed a secret military council to plan for the Rising. Now, they were so determined to keep this secret that they didn't even tell the chief of staff, who was Owen McNeil, because they felt in the past Irish rebellions had been let down by informers. So they were determined to keep the cards very close to their chest on, on, on this occasion. They also sent um, one of their members to, uh, to um, Germany looking for an expeditionary force. He was joined by Sir Roger Casement, the humanitarian, the noted humanitarian, who had exposed the cause of Irish nationalism. And he was in Germany trying to form um, an Irish brigade to fight the German army from amongst Irish prisoners. He failed miserably. He only got about 50, 55, 56 members. But both casements, and I think it was Plunkett, Joseph Plunkett, 
lobbied the German government for an expeditionary force, artillery, submarines to seal off um, the Irish Sea and all the rest of it. But at the end, all they got was the promise of a quantity of arms and ammunition. They would be delivered off the coast of Kerry, distributed to volunteers in the country. The plan was that the volunteers, aided by the socialist-minded Irish citizen army led by James Connolly, they would rise up in Dublin, seize a number of buildings, and hold them while the other volunteers, armed with the German weapons, would march on the city. Would it have succeeded? We don't know, but highly unlikely. Highly unlikely. In the event what happened is that the Royal Navy learned of the armed ship in Cumla Cross. It was coming across in a ship called the Odd, a Norwegian steamer that had been, um, I suppose, the, the identity of the ship, the name of the ship had been changed. The ship was inter- intercepted. The arms were captured. Casement came ashore on a German submarine. He was arrested. And so that major element of the plan collapsed. When the chief of staff learned of this, he sent orders cancelling the rising to the rest of the country. It was originally planned on Easter Sunday. It didn't happen. But Easter Sunday night, um, the military council of the Irish Republican Brotherhood met in Dublin and decided, yes, we're going, notwithstanding what happened, notwithstanding that we don't have sufficient arms and ammunition, notwithstanding the confusion caused by the different orders, they were going to carry on and launch a rising on, at noon on Easter Monday. And that's exactly what they did. So like I said, at noon, they occupied the general post office in Dublin, read the proclamation that was known as the Irish Republic, declared an independent Irish Republic. And they, the, the initial hope was that the rest of the country would rise up and support them. The other volunteer units would be able to mobilise. That didn't happen. The element of surprise had been lost in other parts of, of the country. So, 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 sorry, Gary, go on. No, I, I was about to say, um, did the, or ask rather, did the British have really any inkling of what was about to happen? Well, see, was... this, is, this is the big the, <laughs> debate that, that has been going on. Um, it appears that they had some knowledge of what was coming down the tracks. You know, I mean, British intelligence was quite good, but then there was different elements of British intelligence. You had Dublin Castle, you had the Royal Naval Intelligence. They had intercepted the shipment of arms. There was notices in the paper saying there was going to be a mobilization on Easter Sunday. Again, it was only supposed to be an exercise, but you didn't need much of an intelligent mind to put two and two together, you know? So, I mean, there was there is a strong belief that certain elements in the British security apparatus knew that a rising was planned. But for whatever reason, nothing was, um, I suppose, maybe the fact that nothing happened on Easter Sunday they, they expected nothing was going to happen. Like I said, it did happen on Easter Monday, so but it was we, only localised in Dublin. Right. So we, can we put this in the example of, you know, great missed opportunities to take inv- advantage of advanced intelligence? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, like the, I mean, if you look at the intelligence reports, they were weekly and monthly reports going to Dublin Castle, where from local RAC, that's the Royal Irish Constabulary, they were monitoring local volunteer units. They know how many, they know how many rifles in some cases each volunteer unit had, the strength of each volunteer unit. So it wouldn't have come as a complete surprise what was going on, you know, and I'm sure there's no doubt they would have had, they would have infiltrated the 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 movements throughout the country. I mean, that's the, the curse, I suppose, of Irish uprisings throughout history that they've always had what they call um spies or informers within the ranks. Yeah. Okay. So the um the rising takes place as a proclamation of the Irish Republic. 
not on the steps of the General Post Office because there aren't any steps. At the Absolutely, General Post Office. That's, that's one of the great bits of Irish history. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, and the British reaction is extremely heavy-handed. I think not so much initially, but uh, how they come to handle it after the the immediate shock. I mean, is, is, that, is that a fair point to make? Uh, it is indeed, and like the volunteers were um, garrisons throughout the country were mobilised. Troops from the cover were poured into Dublin. They came, they brought over from mainland UK, and they used artillery in the centre of Dublin, something that the volunteer leadership didn't think was going to happen. Like, there was a gunboat came up the River Liffey. Volunteer positions were shelled. Very quickly, the, the, the volunteer positions around the city were isolated, and some very, very heavy fighting took place. But there's one incident, I think, that illustrates, I suppose... Um, how ill-prepared certain elements of the British Armed Forces were. There was a unit of Sherwood Foresters landed in Dublin, and they were marching up towards the city centre. And they met, basically, they encountered what was a section of Irish volunteers. And that section of men managed to inflict, I think, over 200 casualties on the Sherwood Foresters because they were ill-trained. Some of the Foresters, when they landed, actually thought they were in France. They were second-line territorials, remember? Absolutely, right? you know. And I think when they came under fire, they were marching up this big straight avenue. I've been up there in Dublin. They they hit the ground and started crawling. And one of the volunteers described it as a large khaki snake crawling up the main street. I mean, the volunteers couldn't miss, really. It was pretty grim stuff, you know. I mean, all they had to do was bypass that position and carry on towards their um, main objective. But it goes to show, that, I suppose, poor leadership, Um Lack of training, lack of experience, it really showed in that particular um, case. But that's only one incident. But like I said, within days, the British Army got the upper hand. And on Saturday, I think the 29th of April, the volunteer leadership surrendered. To contextualise the Sherwood Foresters, it's it's worth uh, pointing out that their equivalents at this time were preparing for the Somme in France. This was a a not terribly well-trained army by this stage. And so, you know, that particular example i suspect many other territorials or at least uh you know um, troops that only just undergone training in britain wouldn't have behaved much uh much more effectively because we're talking about a fairly untrained army at this stage and indeed as you said gary it's only a couple of months before the Somme. well let's now go on to the Somme because of course uh the Somme is huge in uh the unionist yes. perception of the first world war it's probably the the, the, the rough equivalent to the Easter Rising for, for nationalists. Do you like to talk us through what happened for uh, to the the two Irish divisions, the 36th and the 16th, on the Somme? Well, primarily, obviously, you know, we'll, we'll look at the 36th because they're coming to sharp focus on the first day of the Somme. On that day, they were given the objective of the Schwaben Redoubt. And I, I think it would be fair to say, unlike the majority of British units, the Ulstermen actually succeeded in reaching their objective that day. They had great leadership under Major General um, Nugent, I think was the, the commander of the 16th Division. He was a bit, he didn't believe in his men walking to the to their objective. You know, he told them to run, discard some of their equipment and all the rest of it. So they did fight. They did fight very hard. They reached their objective. But unfortunately, the units to their left and right didn't succeed. And they were the Ulster men were very quickly um, hammered with artillery and inflating fire. And they were forced to retreat. But they suffered over 2,000 casualties 
on that day. Horrendous loss. Like, as neat as many other units did. But from the perspective of the Ulster Unionist stroke Protestants, this was their covenant with Britain. This was their blood sacrifice. And even to this day, the commemoration of the psalm is very important in Northern Ireland. As far as they were concerned, we shed our blood for the Union. And the Union should be inviolable. It's there forever. Britain owes us this much. So the 16th Division, probably their part isn't as well known, you know. But like I did say, they did play the part probably in the later um, parts of the battle. And I just want to bring, I just think somebody crossed my mind. And the war was all about individuals and personalities as well. And looking at the Battle of Ginchy, I think it's the 9th of September 1916, one of the well-known Irish politicians and poets and barristers, Tom Kettle, lost his life at, at that battle. And he's known for a great poem he wrote um, to my daughter Betty, A Gift of God. He wrote that a few days beforehand where he was trying to explain to her, you know, he said, people will ask why I did this, you know, and he's trying to set out the reasons why he did. But funnily enough, or not funnily, I suppose, but one of the people with Tom Kettle in the Dublin Fusiliers that day was a Lieutenant Emmett Dalton. Emmett Dalton was a national volunteer who joined the British Army, and he wasn't too far when Tom Kettle was killed at the Battle of Ginchy, and Dalton won the military cross. Fast forward a few years, after the war was over, Emmett Dalton came back, joined the IRA, fought his former comrades in the British Army. When the Irish Civil War broke out, he became a major general in the Irish National Army, and he was alongside Michael Collins. So there you have the trajectory of one man's military career that in many respects reflects the complexities of Irish history. Well, going back to something you said earlier, uh, Jerry, it's uh, really surprising how often the Irish Revolution and the First World War are viewed as being two separate events. Of course, they are completely in intertwined. Ah, absolutely. No, if you look at 1966, I'm going back a bit now, 1966 would have been the 50th anniversary of the Somme and the 50th anniversary of the Easter Rising. In the Republic, the entire country focused on the Rising. There was nothing, no mention, except, let's we'll say, from unit of the Royal British Legion and a few others. No official commemoration of the Somme. And it was a hugely important, um, the First World War was a very important um, chapter in Irish history. No, I mean, not alone in terms of loss of life, it was the biggest tragedy since the famine, but without the First World War, we would have had no Easter Rising, no War of Independence, and so on. But it wasn't recognised as such back then. It's only in recent years... We could discuss that maybe, how it, 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 it came to reclaim its rightful place in the history books of Ireland. Well, that's one of the revolutions in our understanding of Irish, and indeed, First, First World War history. Uh, let's just capture the Easter Rising and the Somme, if we can. Uh, yeah. History has a habit of becoming politicised in any country. It's particularly politicised in the case of Ireland in terms of the First World War. So can you sort of draw the threads together? To what extent uh, were the roles of the uh, the, the nationalist and, and, and unionist seen purely through the lens of myth rather than history when it comes to the First World Yes, indeed. Well, I suppose in, in, in terms of myth, like I said, I'll just recap what I said about the, the unionists, that they see this as their blood sacrifice to copper fasten the union between um, Northern Ireland and Britain. On the nationalist side, they also view this as a blood sacrifice because you must realize at, at the end of the 1916 Rising, when the volunteers 
and the rebels were being led off. They were being spat at and jeered and stoned by the people of Dublin. But it's the execution of the leaders, right? The execution of the leaders led to a massive sea change in opinion. And bear in mind, we're looking at Catholic Ireland. Look at the whole thing, the Easter rising, the resurrection, the resurrection of Ireland with the sacrifice of Christ. And now we have the blood sacrifice of 16 leaders, rebel leaders afterwards, executed by the British. So that led to a huge sea change in, in thinking and outlook amongst the nationalist population of Ireland. So on one hand, we had the blood sacrifice in Northern Ireland with the Psalm, and in the South, then you had the blood sacrifice of the Easter Rising with the, for the nationalist people. And that, that mythology, I suppose, would carry its way and permeate Irish politics for the next 70 or 80 years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that, that is so important. Certainly during the centenary years of, of the First World War, I had quite a lot to do with uh, my counterparts in Ireland, including, in fact, uh, I was over in Cork, I think at least twice with, yes. with, with you, Jerry. And it did strike me how Irish people from North and South were coming at the First World War from a completely different direction. Indeed. From, from Brits and indeed from people from, from, from other countries. Yeah. And I suspect that's not always as well recognized outside the island of Ireland as it no. should be. Yeah. It's it's it was it had become very politicized, I suppose, more than you know, rather than focus on the military history aspect of it. And it become very politicized. But I have to say a lot of that is changing. There's a slow sea change. But I'll give you one example of what you're talking about. When I was working on the book The Great Sacrifice, looking at over four thousand Cork men, or identifying over four thousand Cork people who died in the war, I got a phone call one night from somebody I know in Northern Ireland. And effectively, he said to me, we have, you have your Easter rising. Leave us with the psalm. <laughs> you know? mm. Yeah, but I mean, that's the, I'm not blaming him. That's the way, that was his outlook, you know? But mm. the, the war, I mean, John Horn, and I'll mention it at the end, but the Royal Irish Academy produced a book called Our War. And I think that's a good title of it because it was our war as it, much as it was Great Britain's war, as it was America's war and other countries. Okay, Spence, were you, were you going to come in there? No, I just found an interesting comment on the the nature of how, even in a, a single nation such as Ireland, the perceptions of the war can vary so much. And I, I see echoes of that with a lot of the wider British Empire. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> oh, I've got a frog in my throat. I see well, that with a lot of experiences within the, the British Empire of that time, you know, thinking of India and thinking of Canada, Australia, South Africa, of course, the the duality of the war experience in terms of national identity, if you will. And I think it's a perhaps Ireland is the, the strongest example of that and what you've been talking about, Jerry, and the, the differences between Ulster and the Republic and their perceptions of the First World War, and that that still has so much resonance now, a century on, is all the more reason to study this period, I think. Well, it, it is changing, Spencer. I have to say, it is changing. A lot of a lot had happened. Obviously, the the, the Good Friday Agreement. One of the benefits of the Good Friday Agreement, it, it gave a more relaxed attitude towards people looking at history. Then we had the unveiling of the Island of Ireland Peace Park in mm. in Vichat in in Belgium. That was attended by Queen Elizabeth and President Mary McAleese. That in turn led to the visit of. Queen Elizabeth to the Republic, which I have to say was an amazing occasion. I mean, to see the head of the British state and the head of the Commonwealth laying a wreath at the Republican Garden of Remembrance, accompanied mm. by the Irish president, and equally seeing the Irish president accompanying the Queen laying a wreath at the War Memorial Gardens. 
I think the visual, the optics of that was very, very powerful. Mm. And I think society has matured a bit more, I think, in looking at the whole um, tapestry, I suppose, of the First World War. And when it comes to First World War studies, for years, because I suppose we can look at the War of Independence and Civil War now shortly, the British became, it was very binary. Irish good, British bad. That was it, you know what I mean? If you were nationalist, you didn't say you had somebody in the British Army and so forth. But in recent years, when all of this eased, I suppose, is, is the best word, and historians and organizations like the Western Front Association started looking at Ireland's contribution to the to the First World War. In many respects, they were knocking at an open door because mm-hmm. so many people in Ireland had lost a family member in that conflict or somebody had been wounded and things. So, and for years, they never, they didn't have closure, I suppose. That's one way of putting it. They didn't feel able to commemorate to publicly um, do that. But I said, the the relaxation of the political situation gave them an opportunity to do so. And I think that's, it was very, it's excellent. You know, it's a very, very healthy thing for the politics of this island as well. Absolutely. Oh, sorry, Gary. No, as I say, I think in that period, uh, both Ireland and Britain displayed a much more grown-up approach to our, our shared history. Absolutely. That's a good Which, way to describe it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, one can argue that certain things or thing has developed since, which is sort of slight spanner in the work, but we, we yeah. won't go there since we're not a, a political <laughs> podcast. But generally speaking, I think we're a lot further now in 2023 than we were uh, 20 years ago in terms of understanding Britain and yeah. Ireland's relationship in terms of, of war. And I do, I give a number of talks to, to different schools. And what I always encourage students, I said, you know, when we come to this aspect of our history, the challenge is to leave your family traditions, park them, you know, your own perceptions, your own prejudices, approach the table of history with a clear mind. And don't rush to condemn or condone, but try your best to understand in the first instance. You know, all aspects of what, you know, it is a very complex and complicated period. So I think, as you said, Gary, understanding can bring its own rewards as well. That is such a good way of putting it. And not least because the Irish and British populations are so intermingled. I mean, certainly I have got Irish ancestors. I think Spence has too. I have too, yes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, equally, there's thousands of, of Irish people working in Britain. The airports are full every day of people commuting back and forth. And like, it's there you go. We're very close. I mean, people follow um, Manchester United here in Cork. I won't get into the f- politics of football at the moment. But, I mean, they follow Irish football. They look at sorry. They follow British football. They look at British soaps. The the royal family is is much of a drama for Irish people and for British people as well. So there's very close cultural and family connection between the two countries. Indeed, we need to move on a little, yeah. a little bit. So. Um, oversimplifying, Ireland goes relatively quiet after the rising in terms of military operations, uh, but recruiting for the British Army drops off quite sharply. But then, of course, after the end of the First World War, the war against Germany, then uh, a serious fight for independence begins within Ireland. So perhaps you could say something about yeah, the, yeah. The, the, the the guerrilla phase of, yeah. of this war. Uh, just, uh, just, uh... Drop back a small bit, Gary, if I, if I may say, we missed one sort of critical um, chapter in the, in the whole story. Like I mentioned, we had the 1916 Rising and the execution of the leaders led to a huge sea change in, in outlook amongst nationalist population. 19, 
17, we had the Irish Volunteers reorganising. They would become known as the Irish Republican Army. Then we had the Sinn Féin Party reorganising. Now, Sinn Féin didn't play a part in the 1916 Rising, despite the newspapers calling it the Sinn Féin Rising. But in 1917, that party reorganised and became sort of an umbrella organisation of all strands of nationalist opinion. And it became a movement more so than a political party and a movement committed to securing an Irish Republic. Move forward to 1918, Ireland, were, men were continuing to die on, on, on all the theatres of the war. More were coming home wounded. And when we hit the German offensive, something happened that had a huge impact on Ireland. Conscription had been introduced in Britain in January 1916. But Lloyd George, or whoever it was at the time, I think, left Ireland out of it because they felt they wouldn't have, they would need a huge amount of, of men to enforce conscription. However, after the German offensive and the huge British casualties, a decision was taken to introduce conscription to Ireland. And that would have a major impact on the mindset of the nationalist population. Because when the threat of conscription came, that one single act managed to unite all strands of nationalist opinion together with the Catholic Church and the labor movement, opposing conscription. And as it turned out, conscription wasn't introduced. But as far as the Irish people were saying, hold on, we've lost thousands of men. We bought into the war. We went off in fighting. And here we are in 1918. What have we got for it? Nothing. No home rule, nothing except grief, death and bloodshed. Jerry, so... The Anglo-Irish War, the War of Independence, begins. It's uh, a guerrilla war. It's a war which the British think they have a hope of winning, but of course they don't. Is it a military defeat or is it more of a political defeat? I suppose, Gary, it's probably a mixture of both. Um, if I may sort of paraphrase a recent or, sorry, a bit of a well-known term here in Ireland, I think the Republican movement approached the campaign, let's say, with a Lee Enfield 303 in one hand and a ballot paper in another. Hmm. So it was a dual approach. Sinn Féin was working the political um, landscape. They won an overwhelming victory in the 1918 general election. They they formed their own independent Irish assembly called Doyle Aaron, an, an Irish term. They de declared independence. They declared um, an Irish republic. And at the same time, the more militant members of the IRA started attacking members of the Royal Irish Constabulary. As you said, it was guerrilla warfare, urban and rural, at its best or maybe at its worst, I suppose you might you might say. The IRA knew it was never going to defeat the British militarily in a conventional um, conflict. The 1916 Rising proved that. So they adopted their strategy and tactics. And in the first instance, they targeted members of the police force because they were seen as the eyes and ears of the British administration. And throughout 1919, you had an increasing number of attacks on isolated um, police barracks in the countryside and on individual members of the police. That forced huge resignations within the ranks of the RIC. And it also led to the closure of rural police barracks and the redeploying of those um, into large urban areas. That effectively gave the IRA control of the countryside. But within the urban areas, you had isolated attacks, assassinations, targeted assassinations, um, ambushes in the city streets. And like I said, targets of opportunity as well. They, they'd be identified by the IRA and taken out as well. And like I said, hand, side by side with that, you had the political um, thing going. You had the separate Irish Assembly 
Sinn Féin formed their own courts. And one night in April um, 1920, they destroyed, attacked and destroyed over 400 tax offices throughout the country as well. They were trying to make Ireland ungovernable for the British. And of course, the British responded in kind. Uh, you've written about the burning of Cork yes, in Yes, indeed. I, I suppose if you want to characterise the, the conflict in a, in a short way, it would be IRA attacks followed quickly by British retaliations. I mentioned that you had large numbers of the RAC who resigned because of the conflict. They couldn't get recruits, sufficient recruits in, in Ireland. So what the British done is they started opening recruitment to the RAC in Britain. This led to the individuals that became known as the Black and Tans, primarily for the most part ex-servicemen. And they became known as the Black and Tans because there were insufficient quantities of dark green police uniforms. So they were kitted out with a mixture of army khaki and dark green um police uniforms, and some inspired with, named them the Black and Tans, I think, after a well-known pack of, of, of greyhounds at the time. They had minimum training, I think six weeks or something, and they were put into a very, very difficult situation. In the First World War, their enemy was identified by their uniforms, by their language, by the positions they held, but these people were put into an environment where anybody could be their enemy. They could be shot in the street, they could be ambushed, they could be attacked anywhere. So, their only way of responding was to launch a retaliation. And that's exactly what they did. They very quickly proved ill-disciplined and they had, I suppose, a bad publicity um, impact for, for Britain. Like I said, it became well-known or infamous throughout Ireland. Now, General MacReady, who was the commander-in-chief of British forces in Ireland, was the, he was adamant if, if he had, I think it was eight battalions of infantry, he could finish the job. But Lloyd George and Winston Churchill and the others didn't want to... Um, militarized the conflict. They didn't want to acknowledge the IRA as an army. So Churchill came up with the idea, rather than giving them eight battalions of infantry, we'll create another force comprised this time of ex-commissioned officers with combat experience. They were recruited, plenty of applicants. They became known as the Auxiliary Division of the Royal Irish Constabulary. Military men, again like the Black and Tans, but in police uniform, only this time, for the most part, they were commissioned officers. And they mission was established basically was to smash terror with terror. And they became well known for a whole series of atrocities and retali retali retaliatory attacks toward Ireland. I suppose the best known one is the burning, the incident that became known as the burning of Cork. That occurred on the night of the 11th and 12th of December. On the 10th of December, martial law had been declared in the south of the country after the Kilmichael ambush, which was a huge defeat for the auxiliary. 17 were killed and one was seriously injured. And in Cork, you had K Company based in what was then Victoria Barracks. And on the night of the 11th, they were ambushed 200 yards away from the barracks. And that was the breaking point. So within a very short time, they stormed out of the barracks, went down to where the ambush took place, burned dragged the people out of around 10 buildings there, set the buildings alight. And then while while that was happening, another bunch of auxiliaries went down into the city centre and proceeded to burn the main street of Cork. And later that night, um, they also burned the city hall and the Carnegie Free Library, which is one of the biggest libraries in, in Europe at the time. Like I said, over 2,000 people were put out of work. Um, Acres upon acres of properties damaged, four, 40 business um, properties, I think, and up to 200 homes, and three million pounds worth of damage, three million in 1920 um, values at the time. So this, needless to say, 
if there were any loyal people left in Cork prior to that, they very quickly changed their allegiance. Yeah. You know, I mean, it had a huge negative impact for Britain. It's uh, now seen as one of the classic examples of how not to conduct counterinsurgency. <clears throat> And uh, I did some a little bit of work on this a few years ago, and it struck me that what we've got here, apart from anything else, is a continuation of the total war mentality. Uh, you know, Britain has come out of fighting a, a total war against Germany, and they're still thinking in those sorts of terms. And so they're much more heavy handed than they would have been, I suspect, a few years later or a few years earlier. I mean, that's not to underplay the level of violence of British counterinsurgency, but Cork is just something on a different level. Oh, yeah. I mean, we had the burning of Cork. The Lord Mayor of Cork was shot dead in his home in front of his pregnant wife. Another Lord Mayor died in hunger strike. And there was a host. Um, one of the high profile targets was um, Lieutenant Colonel General Bryce Ferguson Smith. He was shot dead in Cork City. And look, I could go on. Mm-hmm. Like Cork was in the eye of the storm for, for, for that whole period. And indeed, Gary, you mentioned I've had um, officers from the... British Armed Forces and from the American Armed Forces during my own military career coming over to Cork to look at, um, to study that period of Irish history with a view to looking at the counterinsurgency and indeed the tactics used by the insurgents on both ends. They, they feel it was a classic conflict to study and to try to learn lessons from. But it was it was pretty, pretty vicious, I have to say. Okay, well, coming to the end of our time, so very briefly, let's talk about the Irish Civil War. Of course, you know, uh, victory is achieved but it's a partial victory. Uh, Ireland is partitioned with six counties remaining as part of the UK, Northern Ireland, and the victorious forces then fall out among themselves. I think what I'm particularly interested in is how is the um, how is Ireland handling this at its centenary? Because we are, you know, 100 years on now, aren't we? So a, a very, very divisive uh, movement at the time. How divisive is it in historical and political terms today? Well, today I have to say, Gary, two of the main protagonists, the two of the main parties that split in the civil war are actually in coalition in government. So things have changed. The civil war, I think, is remembered for, um, in many respects, its atrocities. You know, it was, if the war of independence was bad, the civil war was even worse, I would say. You had a split within the IRA. The pro-treaty members soon went on to form the National Army. You know, they were the pro-treaty element. The anti-treaty element retained the title IRA. Um, the whole thing started on the 28th of June 1922 when an IRA garrison that had occupied the four courts was shelled. That came following on from the assassination of Field Marshal Sir Henry Wilson. Lloyd George sent an ultimatum to Michael Collins, who was then head of the provisional government, which was formed to implement the treaty to clear out the four courts. And he did so with a loan of some 18-pounder guns that he got from the British. And that didn't go down too well, as you can imagine, with some um, some of the people of Ireland. Like I said, the Civil War started in June 1922, um, and it ended in May 1923, pretty much with a National Army stroke pro-treaty victory. The Republicans didn't, they said they didn't surrender, they dumped their arms. But like I said, it was a particularly vicious um, conflict that caused a lot of wounds um, that would take decades to heal. In some places, I'm sure, they're still not even healed 100%. But like I said, in recent years, Ireland has been looking at what we're calling the decade of centenaries, where we had a whole series of commemorations, starting with, we'll say, the Dublin lockout of 1913, the First World War, Easter Rising, War of Independence and Civil War. And while a lot of it was interrupted by COVID, I have to say, 
aside from the commemoration, a proposed commemoration for members of the Royal Irish Constabulary, which didn't happen, it by and large it went quite well. And I think the focus has been on community commemorations and education. Education, education, education. That really has to be the key to achieving a greater understanding. And like I say to people, look, lads, it's 100 years ago. It happened 100 years ago. Let's try to understand what happened as opposed to keep fighting the battles that took place 100 years ago. Well, that's a great way to end. So, Jerry, If I may, if I may Gary, just, just give me a second. I just want to end with something, if, if I could bring it up here now, just one second. There's been a lot of speculation as to why people, why Irishmen joined the British Army, right? And I just want to finish up with this letter that was written by John O'Flynn. He was the secretary of a vet- veterans organization based here in Cork. He wrote this letter to a paper here in the city in November 1918. It's entitled, Why We Fought. And I quote, At the outbreak of the war, we as plain men felt that it was our duty to stand against the threat to civilization. Were we right? Was it an honourable thing to do? Had we any doubts about our duty to Christianity and to our country? The leaders of our church agreed that we were right. We found our nationalist leaders, though opposed in politics, also agreed that we were right. We have since been told that our leaders should have made some sort of political bargain for Ireland first. Our answer to that is, you cannot bargain with a nation's honour. We went into the war in the name of Ireland, with clean hands and a pure heart. And we came up with a reputation that did not disgrace the name of Ireland. I think that's nice. It encapsulates when we talk about Irishmen who joined the First World War, why they did so. Thank you. Now, that's that's a terrific way to end. Well, Jerry, thank you very much indeed. That's a really enlightening conversation. I learned a lot about Ireland in the First World War and the period of the First World War. So let's say thank you from me uh, and goodbye. and. Over to you, Spence. Thank you for me. It's been an absolutely fascinating tour of Irish history. I've learned a great deal, and I'm sure our listeners have too. So thank you for coming on the show, Jerry. Absolutely. So great honour, lads. And hopefully both of you know might um, turn your attention to some Irish history in the future. I'd love to see what you make of it. Well, everyone, I hope you enjoyed our bonus episode. We will certainly be returning to discuss some Irish military history in the future. Goodbye for now. We will be back in the autumn with season two of Military History Plus.